Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue to reflect into theology of the body by way of Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts, a work that uh, he breaks open in three parts, the first being desire, the second design, and the third destiny. And we have started the second part, design, uh, as of last week. So we will spend the next month, month and a half, uncovering the importance of that word as it relates to theology of the body, that is design. But before I get into that, I want to draw attention to uh, both a question and a conversation I got into recently as it relates to the liturgy, because we are going to talk about the stuff of the liturgy this evening, and it concerns the language of active participation. And in effect, the question was, what is active participation? What is that actuoso participatio? Right? This is a phrase that comes to us from Vatican II, and, and I know it is often misunderstood to mean something external, but when you take a closer look into what the word itself means, we discover its true meaning. Look at the word closely. Part is a patient, right? Participation. So participation refers to a principal action in which everyone has a what? Part, right? So we discover our doing to the degree that we understand the central action of which we are participating in. That is to say, the solemn public speech of God in and through the priest. And we call this the oratio of God. In essence, what we are saying here is when God speaks, he creates, and we are drawn into that, and in so doing, we become a new creation. Consider the book of Genesis here, huh, and the story of creation. God spoke, and he created, huh? So the uniqueness of the liturgy of the Eucharist is that it is God himself who is acting in and through human speech, and we are drawn into that action. Now, that word active is very important because we do need to crowd out all the noise, dispose ourselves to enter into that action, which ultimately means with both mind and heart, enter into those words. And of course, when we receive the Eucharist, literally, we are transformed in Christ and we become a new creation. That transformation is going to be all the more powerful for us, existentially speaking, the more we enter into the words being spoken with both mind and heart. Okay, so with that, let us jump into fill these hearts. Now, by way of snapshot from last week, now Derek was with me last week, I think I'm going to have Chris and Derek with me uh, next week. We started part two, huh? Design. And what do we mean by the word design? Well, remember what the word itself means. It comes from a Latin word that means to set apart for a specific purpose. From day, out of or from, and signare, to mark or to sign. Okay, so we were marked huh, with a very specific purpose. God stamped into our very beings 
a very specific purpose. And this is certainly what we're going to be talking about today. Now, the title of the chapter is Our Bodies Tell the Story. Tell the story of what? Well, complementarity. As we were reflecting into it last week, huh? You, you go to a beachfront and you see a rock. And in that rock, you have something that is deeply masculine, sturdy, strong, right? And then you have the water crashing up against the rock. The water represents what is feminine. It is fertile. It is life-giving. When the two come together, the water and the rock, there is something deeply satisfying. There is a masculine quality and a feminine quality in nature itself. And of course, our bodies tell most beautifully the story of what is masculine and what is feminine. So we will pick up uh, on page 91 of Christopher West's work, uh, Fill These Hearts, where he gets into the ultimate purpose of sex. I think we talked about that a little bit last week, huh? And as, as he speaks to it here, when we open our eyes, we see that all of creation speaks of the mystery of marriage, of the attraction and union of creative difference, right? That is the rock and the water. And creation's story culminates in our creative difference as male and female. Again, that great line that comes to us from John Ball too, that we are the crown of creation. huh? And as the crown of creation, man and woman tell God's story most vividly, more so than, of course, the sun and the earth or the birds and the bees ever could. I mean, listen to our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Haven't you read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For what reason? Huh? <laughs> well, the Apostle Paul tells us the reason when he says that the joining of man and woman in one flesh is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. Those all important verses that come to us from chapter 5 verses 21 and following. John Paul II says that if we let the wealth of truth in this passage, that is Ephesians 5, sink in, it will reveal to us in a particular way what it means to be human, and it will make our supreme calling and destiny quite clear. This passage, according to John Paul II, summarizes the central theme of biblical revelation, the main thing God wants us to know about who he is and who we are. Think about what he just said. In Ephesians 5, verses 21 and following, and especially verses 31 to 32, John Paul too says that you have the central theme of biblical revelation, the main thing God wants us to know about who he is and who we are. Why? Well, because it is there where we learn of the purpose of sexual difference and the call to union is not only about reproducing human species, although certainly that is an essential part of it. It's not only for the sake of human companionship, although that too is an essential part of it. The ultimate purpose of the sexual difference and the call to union is to signify the difference and call to union of the creator and the creature of Christ and his church. My dear friends, God is infinitely other, infinitely different from his creation. 
And yet this infinitely different creator does not hold himself aloof. He does not hold himself in the abstract. He does not hold himself where we can't touch him or feel him. God wants to be one with his creation. This is why we have the incarnation, right? God wants to unite with his creation. God wants to marry his creation. And this is what the mystery of Jesus Christ, the mystery of God taking on the flesh, is all about. The marriage of creator and creature, the marriage of divinity and humanity. What an astounding view of God and his plan for the world and for us. <clears throat> and as Christopher West notes here, <laughs> there's even more to it, huh? Remember what we learned in the second grade. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby and the baby carriage, right? <laughs> what we didn't realize then was that we were actually reciting some profound theology. Not only does God love us, not only does he want to marry us, God wants to fill us full with his own divine life, to literally fulfill us, huh? And this divine infilling, as St. Bonaventure says, is nothing other than the heavenly Father by a divine seed, as it were, impregnating, impregnating the soul. Christopher West goes on to say, Oh, how we long for this infilling. It's the fulfillment of the creature's deepest ache and cueing the title of his work. If the collective cry of humanity is, fill these hearts, that's because in the very design of our humanity we find, in the words of Peter Kreft, a womb-like emptiness crying out to be filled, impregnated by our divine lover. Wow, isn't that provocative stuff, huh? Perhaps now we can understand more clearly why the Apostle Paul called the one flesh union a great mystery that refers to Christ and the church, huh? Perhaps now we can understand why John Paul II believes that Paul's teaching on this point provides a summary of the entire biblical message. Because Christ is the one who, oh, by the way, left father and mother to give up his body for his bride so that the church might become one body one spirit with him, as the priest, of course, says in the church's liturgy. And as I noted off the top, <laughs> the church's liturgy is where it all happens for us because it is the most exalted prayer. It is the place where we not only actively participate in the most profound way, but in so doing, we literally receive him. We are impregnated with him. It's interesting, Christopher West poses the question, do you know why the church has traditionally prayed her liturgy towards the east? Precisely because of the spousal imagery of the sun coming forth in the sky like a bridegroom. The sun's rising is, quite literally, what orients the church's prayer, that is to say, the church's longing. She is the bride awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. And certainly, in the Christian mind, it's no coincidence, my friends, that the day we gather for worship is Sunday, right? Sunday, uh, S-U-N day. Of course, this Sunday is in remembrance of Christ's resurrection. Benedict XVI has a great quote that comes to us from Spirit of the Liturgy, a work that he penned uh, pre-Pope, I think it was the year 2000. He says this, This date 
came to carry the same cosmic symbolism that also determined the Christian direction of prayer. The sun, S-U-N, proclaims Christ. Cosmos and history together speak of him. You know, the church has always understood her liturgy as a cosmic event, a cosmic event in which she gathers up the elements of the earth and gives voice to the cry of all of creation for completion in her creator, for union with divine bridegroom. In her liturgy, the church, speaking for all of creation, gives her yes to God's marriage proposal. She turns towards the sun, S-U-N, and opens her petals like a rose, sending forth fragrance like frankincense. Sirach chapter 39, verses 13 and following. And it is there, the liturgy, where she becomes the garden of the Lord, where the church becomes a fertile soil that receives the seed come down from heaven that brings divine life within us and into the world. I mean, is this not some rich, rich theology. Of course, this is why Christians have always revered Mary, my dear friends, huh? I mean, she is the embodiment of the church, the embodiment of all that nature proclaims. She is, that is Mary, nature's glorified, life-giving mystery. I mean, have you ever contemplated the greatness of being entrusted with the Son of God? be impregnated with the Son of God. Wow. She, that is Mary, has gone before us all as the bride who allowed her heart's desire to be stretched to the point of being able to quite literally receive and even give birth to infinity. Christopher West, beautiful. So Mary, my friends, is the model par excellence of what it means to orient human desire to open eros to God. If prayer is nothing but becoming a longing for God, then Mary is the open vessel of longing in which life becomes prayer and prayer becomes life. That's Benedict XVI. Beautiful. So as we, like Mary, learn to become open vessels of longing, we too, like Mary, can have expectant faith of being what? Fulfilled and filled full, huh? With eyes of faith. We can see this infilling taking place sacramentally at the apex of the Christian liturgy, of course, which we know as the Eucharist. You know, the term comes from the Greek Eucharistia, and we often talk about how it means thanksgiving or to give thanks. It can also speak to what is offered graciously, because the root there, charis, means grace. And remember what I've said about grace and joy. Those two words have the same Greek root. The source of our joy, the source of our thanksgiving, is the grace we receive in the Eucharist, huh? Amen to that. In the Eucharist, Christ offers his body graciously to us. With grace, we could properly say. And we offer ours graciously to him. Why did I talk about active participation in the opening? Well, to emphasize this point. When we offer both mind and heart to God, especially during the Eucharistic prayer, we enter more deeply into the mystery of the Mass. When we offer our body graciously to Him, we enter more deeply 
into the work of God, the action of God. Remember what the word liturgy means, by the way, but God's public work, rightfully so, a work we share in. So, as Cardinal Ratzinger put it, in receiving Holy Communion, there is this person-to-person exchange, a coming of the one into the other, where the living Lord gives himself to me, enters into me, and invites me to surrender myself to him. Striking. Cardinal Ratzinger goes on, and this Holy Communion corresponds to the union of man and woman in marriage. Just as they become one flesh, so in communion, we all become one spirit, one person with Christ. Amen. And of course, this very much speaks to uh, the mystery that we were talking about as it relates to Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32. Now, the Eucharist, of course, is a representation or representation of what Christ did for us on the cross. What did he do? Well, what does St. Augustine tell us? Like a bridegroom, Christ went forth from his chamber. He came to the marriage bed of the cross, and there in mounting it, he consummated his marriage and joined himself to his bride forever. Wow, isn't that beautiful? This is one of my favorite quotes of St. Augustine. Listen to this again. Like a bridegroom, Christ went forth from his chamber. He came to the marriage bed of the cross, and there, in mounting it, he consummated his marriage and joined himself to his bride forever. Remember what he said on the cross, consumatum est. We translate, it is finished, better translated is, as it is consummated. It is consummated. John Paul II put it this way, the Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and of the bride. And John Paul II continues to reflect, in the Eucharist, Christ is united with his body as the bridegroom with the bride. In fact, through the Eucharist, Christ wished to express the relationship between man and woman, between what is feminine and what is masculine. It is a relationship willed by God in both the mystery of creation, again, this speaks to the complementarity we were talking about, and in the mystery of redemption itself. My dear friends, we are all born into the world through the union of man and woman, and that's the mystery of our creation. And all who are baptized are born again, right? Born again into a new creation through the union of Christ and the church. That's the mystery of our redemption. So there you see the link between creation and redemption. Our natural birth, creation, our spiritual birth, redemption. And out from that, we can see that the mystery of redemption builds on the mystery of our creation, clothing itself, so to speak, in its form. And this means what? That both our creation and our redemption are spousal realities, or in the language of the church, and certainly John Paul II, nuptial realities. One takes place through the bodies of man and woman in their intimate embrace, and of course, the other takes place through Christ's body given up for us on the marriage bed of the cross. If we can grab hold of the link between creation and redemption, natural birth, spiritual birth, and how we are drawn into the great mystery of Jesus Christ. I know this is uh, rich theology this evening, yet it's so powerful. 
if we can only plant a seed, that would be enough for me this evening because it's so rich. Now, all that being said, and as Christopher West highlights, what does that mean? Our bodies are not only biological, right? They are also, and even more so, theological because they proclaim a great mystery that is spiritual and divine. Now, here, Christopher West transitions into this sub-piece titled, Adjusting Our Focus, huh? (laughs) You know, the physical world, that which we can see with our eyes, is a sign of something we can't see with our eyes, but often sense, we can properly say, at a deeper level of our being. We cannot see, per se, the mystery of God. God is invisible. But since we are made in the image of God as male and female, our bodies are a sign of God's mystery in the world. So to speak of the design of our bodies as male and female is precisely to speak of them from the perspective of of the sign, right? Of design, huh? Our bodies are designed to make visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. This is a huge point for theology of the body. And it is here where John Paul II reminds us only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible. God created our bodies in their masculinity and femininity precisely to transfer from heaven to earth the mystery hidden from eternity in God. In other words, God created us (laughs) as sexual beings. God created us as male and female to tell the story of his own life-giving love in the world and to invite us to participate in that life-giving love eternally. Think about that. Is that not good news? I mean, this is the code written into the very design of our bodies, our deepest desires, and into the whole universe. If this code is everywhere, as we talked about it last week and even a little bit this week, huh? When you start talking about the complementarity of male and female and even the complementarity of of the natural world, we can better grasp the significance of theology of the body. Huh? To speak of the code is to speak to what is stamped into our very bodies. The question that Christopher West asks, and it is an important question, is why don't we see it more clearly? Huh? Most of us view our bodies through the biological frame we were given in school. Thank God for all that modern biology has taught us about the human body. Who would want to live without the miracles of modern medicine? But when we reduce our bodies to something merely biological, as Christopher West reminds us, we lose sight of the 3D reality of God's design. Here, Christopher West, and I just thought this to be so striking, talks about an encounter he had uh, while teaching. He first poses the question, do you remember Peter Gabriel's song, In Your Eyes? I think we've all heard that song, right? I'm not going to dare attempt to sing it. He sings of how this woman's eyes reveal the light, the heat, and that in her eyes he sees the doorway to a thousand churches. Right? Powerful stuff. Now that is a man, Peter Gabriel, who is seen in the 3D. Now, what were to happen if we were to reduce this to what is merely biological? 
the song might go something like this. In your eyes, the cornea. In your eyes, the retina. In your eyes, I see the lines of a thousand bloodshot blood vessels. (laughs) That's not very romantic. As Christopher West shares, uh, he once shared those lyrics with a class. And one particular student shouted out, stop, you're ruining the song. huh? <laughs> and that's precisely the point. That's what happens when we reduce the human body to something merely biological. We ruin the song. Just not a song that Peter, that Peter Gabriel sings, but the song that our bodies sing. Along with all of creation, our bodies are meant to be singing God's love song. And oh, by the way, it's a book in the Bible, the Song of Songs. It's sin that causes us to sing out of tune with God's song. The good news is a point highlighted in the catechism, and we can never reinforce it enough. Christ came to restore all of creation to the purity of its origins. And he does so by giving us his very essence, his very life-giving purity. My dear friends, The intricate design of creation speaks of the intimate designs of the Creator, His plans, His purposes, and His invitation to men and women to enter into His own mystery, His own love and life. All of creation tells the story. We just need to open our heart. You know, recently Pope Francis penned the encyclical on creation, on care for what we all have in common in creation. But it just wasn't about a natural ecology, right? What so many people want to focus on. But in an ecology of the heart, where we are called to enter into the purity of our origins so that we might better understand the mystery of God. And just not our relationship excluded from creation around us, but in light of who He is as Creator. The deeper we go into our sonship in Christ, the deeper we go into our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the more we will better understand the designs of the Creator. And as we do so, it will have this kind of reciprocal effect. Why? Well, my friends, this is what we've been talking about. The more we perceive how nature itself speaks to what is masculine and what is feminine, The more we see that trees, rocks, tables, ideas, feelings, and virtually everything else is masculine and feminine, we will be well on our way to better understanding who we are as male and female and how we possess those masculine or feminine qualities. So widely important. Understanding God as creator and father lies at the heart of our faith, one forming and informing the other. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.